You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Good morning. It's good to see you today. I'm glad that uh, that bumper video is so long. It gives me a chance to get another drink in. I'm like... Uh, it's been a beautiful weekend, right? But it's, it's like, it's been one of those things where you want to go outside and you want to spend your time outside. Anybody get the, uh, the itch to plant a garden yesterday? Um, I had that itch. I had to refrain myself. I'm like, no, let's not go there. But uh, it's a good time. It's a beautiful weekend and, and it's a, been some beautiful days. The Lord's been really kind to us. Today we're going to wrap up um, our series on the Apostle Paul. And we're going to go with Paul on a journey. We're actually going to start in Rome, in the, last, the last day of his life. It was uh, June 29th of 67 AD. And on that morning, Paul and Peter, we think, were inclined to think from a number of other writings. Paul and Peter wake up together. They share a prison cell. Not the kind of prison that Paul was in when he's been in Rome at previous times. Because the first time he came to Rome, he was under house arrest. In a house where people could come and go and visit him and he could receive guests. But this time, Paul and Peter are in a dank prison. They have been arrested uh, under Nero's command to do everything possible to snuff out, to snuff out this group of people calling themselves Christians or followers of the way, anything related to Christus. See, in July of 64, Nero watched Rome burn. And it's a, it's a really great question as to whether he just watched it burn or he set people off who inflamed the fire itself. But after that moment of Rome burning, the emperor and the empire needed a scapegoat. And they found a scapegoat in the people of the way, the people who were following Jesus. And so they began to arrest them and they began to do everything that they could within the confines of Rome to snuff out Christianity. And so Paul, who had left Rome at one point after his um, trial before Nero in 62. He left and went to Spain. He'd come back and now he was arrested and he was with Peter. And on June 29th of 67, soldiers would come and they would take Peter to a place close to where we know St. Peter's Basilica today. And they would honor his request and they would crucify him upside down. And he would die a martyr in Rome. Other soldiers would come and they would take Paul from the city center. They would march him about six miles south of Rome to a place called the Trefontana. And and if I didn't say that right, it translates into three fountains. Three fountains. And they would execute Paul in that place. He would kneel down, however... For the execution, but he wouldn't kneel as somebody who was fearful. 
He wouldn't kneel as somebody who was afraid. He knelt as somebody who had written these words about 10 years before to the church at Corinth when he said, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For the sin is, uh, for sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thanks be to God, for he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. And as Paul kneels down for the last time in his life, I can't help but think that these words, this reality must be surging through his body. He kneels as one who has got hope springing up as a fountain within him. It's interesting, the place where he's, he's executed is called the Three Fountains. The story goes is that when his head was severed from his body, it bounced three times. And in each place, it bounced. There rose a fountain of water. He was somebody who had a fountain of hope. In the face of, of everything, in the face of knowing what could happen in Rome, in the face of all of the places that he had been in his life, he was somebody who was filled with hope and seldom deterred from ever going someplace. He, he sensed that he was led to go. What was it, what was the motor that was inside of, of this personality? What compelled him to go to places when other people said, it's not safe there? It was this reality. A reality that he could never get away from. It was the reality that God kept showing up in his life. Just like he had been on the, Rome from or on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus and God showed up, God continued to show up in his life and continue to give him courage and hope, fortitude and strength. And in fact, what some of us may think is, is an undue amount of confidence. Paul has all of those things residing within him. We see it in a number of different places. We see this, this reality of hope, this trust in God, this abandonment, if you will, to the mission that God gives to him. Last week, we talked about how Paul was in Ephesus, and we heard about Paul's trip to Ephesus, and then we heard about uh, the letter that he wrote to the church there. On his third missionary journey, which takes place around 58 AD, <clears throat> Paul was in Ephesus, and he had been collecting a, an offering that he was getting ready to, to deliver to Jerusalem. And the church in Ephesus asked Paul, where are you headed? What's, you know, what's in your future? And he said, I'm going to Jerusalem. And they began to beg him at that moment. Uh, Jerusalem has never been kind to you, Paul. It's never been a good place. Paul says to them, I, I recognize that reality. But I have to tell you that the Spirit is compelling me to go to Jerusalem. The Spirit has informed me, has told me that there's going to be jail and suffering is going to be ahead. But there is a task that I am supposed to carry out. There's a, a task for me to finish. And so I know in reality that there may be some hard things ahead. But I'm being compelled by the Spirit. Have you ever been compelled by the Spirit? 
Have you ever had that sense that the Spirit's asking you to do something and you, you can't quite get away from it? As I think about the movement of, of my own life to this point, I've, um, I've come to the realization that there have been three really significant moments when, when I've been compelled by the Spirit. And typically it revolves around a place where we're, where we're going to live. My first, uh, after graduating from seminary, the first time uh, in, in my master's, I was, I was wondering, Lord, where's the next step? And we were really hunting for that. And we, we, Anna and I, we had certain desires. We had a place where we wanted to go. But then doors closed and, and things just weren't right. And then suddenly there was this opportunity and it was like, that's not the place we would pick. Not the place we would really desire to go. And then it was this, other than using Paul's terms, I don't know how to describe it. This sense from God, this compelling of the Spirit that said, this will be a good place. This is a place you need to go. And so we went. Another time, a little bit after that, we were, we were compelled again. And then recently, as we were thinking about what was our next step moving out of a doctoral program, we looked at a, at a number of different things. And I interviewed in a, in a number of different places, but nothing seemed to open up. And then out of the blue, I got a call from pa Pastor Bob Cassidy. And he said he was from Springfield, Missouri, and I had never heard of Springfield, Missouri before in my life. And I'm like, Lord, what? Well, I mean, I did the night before because Ken Nash came over and he said, I just talked to Bob Cassie and I, from Springfield, Missouri. And I'm like, where's Springfield at? And so we had to look it up and it was like, what is God doing? Um, compelled by the spirit. I tell you what, <clears throat> I don't know if, if Paul found this out. I think he did. But what? What I found is that when the Spirit compels you, you may not have a clue as to where you're going, what you're doing, what, you're, what, what actually is the end result. But there's something sweet and beautiful and good that happens when you follow the compelling of the Spirit. So Paul is compelled by the Spirit. He says to the church in Ephesus, he says, I've got to go to Jerusalem. And a couple of things are compelling him to go to Jerusalem to make his way there. One of the things that's compelling him is this offering that he's been collecting all across Asia Minor. You see, <clears throat> Jerusalem is, has been under a drought, and not just a drought, but they face some economic pressures from the empire itself. Uh, today, uh, or this, this week, this year, there's been stories coming out of South America, especially Honduras, about how there's a real um, there's a real struggle because of economic policy for people in Honduras to have access to food. <clears throat> what was happening in Jerusalem at the time was there was a, a, not just a drought in and that was happening because of a lack of rain, but there was a drought because of economic policy from the empire. And so the people in Jerusalem were having a hard time getting, getting access to food. So Paul wanted to take an offering and other, other people around Turkey and Asia Minor wanted to send an offering to Jerusalem. In one place in Rome, he, in the book of Romans, he talks about how our desire to send an offering is present to us because we have 
this, this great understanding that we have been blessed from the people who live and reside in Jerusalem. That we are sharing in the spiritual blessing that they have and we want to send a blessing back to them. And so one of the things that compels Paul is to take an offering. Uh, Pastor Jim did a, well, I, th I think he did a great job describing the offering here this morning. And that when we give to the Lord, we get to, get to give because God has given to us. But, you know, giving an offering, giving tithe is, is about giving to the Lord, but it's also about setting forward into the world ahead of us a spiritual blessing to other people who will come behind us. People that we'll never see. Many of us will never see. We'll never touch. But, but as we've been given to, each one of us has been given to, We've been given the story of Jesus. We've been given life. We've been given all kinds of blessings. When we give, we set in motion blessings to other people. Just thinking about this, the reality of where we're at, and, you know, and we're beginning to see the pews recovered over on this side. And you think about who's going to sit in these pews 20, 30, 40 years from now? I don't know that I can even begin to imagine those faces. But part of what we're doing is, is we're desiring to set in motion a place where people in the future can connect with God, right? We're setting in motion a blessing. So Paul wants to take back a blessing to Jerusalem. The other thing he, he wants to do, and the thing he's compelled with by the Spirit, um, he wants to preach the gospel of Christ again in Jerusalem. He has a heart that is burdened for, for his fellow Jews. He was somebody who was born and, and raised in Tarsus and educated in the synagogues and, and then educated in the temple. He's a Pharisee. He, he knows the law. He knows the faces of those who, who teach and lead in that place. He knows about God's promises. He knows the covenant. He knows that they're supposed to be the people of promise that are blessing other people in the world and so his heart just longs for the people who are there. The reality that he finds in Jerusalem is that they are not always ready to receive the gospel. They're not ready to receive Jesus. And, and uh, just as Jesus recognizes when he, he moves from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem and he weeps, there's something that Paul is ready for when he goes to Jerusalem. That when he talks about the resurrection of Jesus, they may not be ready to hear it. That when he talks about how God has opened wide the gates to the Gentiles of the world, they may not be ready to hear it. The reality is, is that they're not. And when he begins, well, he just shows up at the temple. And people who have known his teaching and know his preaching, they begin to make a ruckus. And so Paul is arrested. He's arrested. And he's almost torn limb from limb. But one of the things that he's able to do, because he understands, well, he understands the entire uh, ecosystem of Jerusalem. He's able to speak into that place. He's able to, to give voice to the hope that he has in Christ. He's able to speak because he's persistent, because he loves the people that are there, and because he has incredible skill in understanding how the that place works. Uh, oftentimes, we think about 
engaging with God from a spiritual reality. And sometimes we miss the reality that there is a skill, a, um, a skill that can be learned, a skill that can be, um, can be given to us, in effect, to be uh, somebody who communicates, somebody who, who speaks into the world in which we're at. Paul has this ability because he's somebody who's, who's been in a number of circles. He's trained in rhetoric and he's trained as a Pharisee. And so he's able to give voice to the hope that he has in Christ. From that place, he's taken to a prison after he speaks. And he's protected by the Roman guard. And in the midst of that prison is another moment when Jesus comes near to him. Because for all that he knows, Paul is not sure that he's ever going to escape the prison in Jerusalem. They want him dead. And then there's a story about how there's a, a number of people who have devoted themselves to making sure that Paul does not leave Jerusalem alive. And yet in the prison in Jerusalem, he has a vision of Jesus. He comes close to him. And Jesus says, that one. <laughs> there's a previous one. This one. Be encouraged, Paul. Just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. And so Paul, sitting in the prison in Jerusalem, sees Jesus, and he hears him once again. And he knows, he knows that he doesn't know a lot of things. He doesn't know how he's going to get out of this prison in Jerusalem. He doesn't know how he's going to make his way to Rome. But if that's where the Lord wants him, somehow, some way, the Lord will get him to Jerusalem, or to get him to Rome. And before long, Paul is moved out of that place. And he goes from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And for a couple of years, he will reside in another jail, probably under house arrest in Caesarea as he's invited time and again to come before uh, a Roman, a Roman uh, emperor, not really emperor, but a Roman governor, and give a reason as to why he was arrested or give a rebuttal to why he was arrested, give a defense of, of, of himself. And in that moment, he begins to hone his, his capacity to give a reason for the reason that he's been in chains. And as he does that, he begins to not just talk about why he's in chains, but he begins to invite his listeners that, that they would have the kind of hope that he does. And the first governor, who he speaks to, likes to hear what Paul says, although he always gets hung up on the idea of the resurrection. And after a couple of years, that governor is taken out of office and a new governor comes in. And then he invites another Jewish governor that's close by to come. And so that they would know together how to send Paul on to Rome. What kind of reason would they give Rome for Paul's arrest? And so in Acts 26, Paul gets up. And he begins to speak to Agrippa and to Felix. And he tells them, about the hope that he has in Christ. 
about the hope of the resurrection and, and about how he's been compelled to go and preach this hope of resurrection to all people, especially to Gentiles. And in a moment, Felix, who's listening, who's the governor in that place in Caesarea, says, Paul, you're mad. You are really mad. You've lost it. You've studied too much. I don't know if Felix knows this or not, but there's, there's a line in the Proverbs that says, too much study can be weary to the soul. Uh, Felix is, is, re, is recounting that, that comment. He's like, too much study has made you mad. And Paul says, it hasn't made me mad. I know what I've seen and what I've heard, and I know how this story isn't a, isn't a study, and it's not simply a story, but this re- accounting of Jesus being resurrected is written in all of the corners of Jerusalem. It's written all over that place. You can't get away from it as a historical reality. It's there. What are you going to do with it? And then Paul looked at Agrippa, and he says, Agrippa, who's the, who's the Jewish governor, He said, Agrippa, I know you know the prophets. And I know you know this story. And Agrippa looks back at him and he says this. Paul, do you think you can persuade me so quickly to become a Christian? And Paul, standing in chains before Felix and Agrippa, says this. He says, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am, except for these chains. I wish you'd all be like me. One commentator said, that's when Paul must have laughed. She said, I wish you'd all be like me, and then he looks down, tattered clothes, chains. Well, except for these things, right? Except for these things. Pastor Bob wrote a line that I think summarizes how, how we could see the life of Paul in this part of the story, but in the fullness of his life. Pastor Bob said, Paul didn't go through life and try to fit God into his agenda, but he sought to know God's agenda, and he offered his life to fit into God's larger mission. Felix and Festus before him and Agrippa, and maybe us too. We try and go through our own life and we order it. And sometimes we try and find out where God can fit in. But Paul, what Paul was inviting people to do was to let their life be something that they throw into God's mission, into God's agenda. Recently I was I was talking with Colonel Brown, who's in the sanctuary with us today. And actually, just about every Sunday morning, Colonel Brown and I have a conversation. And he tells me where he's at in his reading of Scripture. And he tells me what he's learning in those places. And he tells me how it's, it's new. There are things he's learning there that, that he's, he's never seen before. And Colonel Brown is, is going to be 94 in March, aren't you, Colonel? And... And he told me, he said uh, a number of times, he's lamented to me that he started reading Scripture later in life. That in some ways, the story of Agrippa and Felix is a, was his story. That he was, he was looking to climb the ladder as, 
as he was in the military to make progression. And so as we sat down this past week, I turned to him and we, we talked about a number of those things. And one of the questions I asked him was this. I said, what would you say to somebody who's younger? Um, Colonel Brown's going to be 94 in March, so most of us in this room are younger. So I'm going to invite you to hear what Colonel Brown said in reply. What would you say, what would you say to somebody who's, who's younger? Um, what kind of advice would you give to well, I, uh, somebody who's in that place of like, they've got their career, their family, and what, what would you say to them? Well, I would say don't, uh, don't forget the chapel over here and uh, study the book, find out the fundamentals of going on. There's plenty of time to do that. If I, I look back at all the hours, I say, yeah, I'm working here trying to get a promotion, all that, but there was hours in every day that, that uh, I didn't need to go to the club on Friday night all the time. I mean, I, you know, it, our uh, social activities and things like that were plentiful. Cards, play bridge, all the things that you do. But the, the real thing is that you have that type of a time. And when I'm talking to somebody, in fact, I'm interested now because my son knows more about the Bible than I do. And uh, he, he studied it. And so we, we talk every day, he comes over. Now, you know, a man has, I, my only sin is right now is I go over there and smoke a cigar and every day I smoke one cigar and on noon days my son comes over three or four days a week and we sit there for an hour and a half and we smoke a cigar and we talk and we talk about the Bible and all these things because he's active in his church and has studied it. When I was that age I, I was thinking about I really hadn't bucked the world. He's, I have to admit, he's 70, so he started earlier than I did. But I've had an extremely good life, and I, I just thank the Lord every day for it. I have this to say, that ever since I first started out, first started out, was that I've always believed that there was a divine creator. I've always believed that there was a God, that I, I, I don't believe that this just happened on a hot rock. I mean, there was a divine creator that designed this whole thing. So I've always believed that there was an almighty being up there. Now, what I didn't know was the relationship, uh, the uh, Jesus Christ, the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Now I believe, yes, the Holy Spirit is right here and it's been here all the time in my heart because I know it's been there. And I know he's been there, he's he, they're all one now as we look. Mm -hmm. And so when I, I, first I didn't understand that, you know, I was praying to this and left Jesus out, he was just a son, and then all this materialized as I read the Bible and as I understood what was going on. And uh, it makes me feel real good, it's just that I feel like I waited so long mm -hmm. to find out. And yet, in my heart of hearts, I knew there was a, an almighty soul, an almighty God. I didn't necessarily call him God at, at all times, but the point being that I knew there was a divine creator. Mm -hmm. I used to refer to him as the grand architect of the universe and the divine creator of everything. But I, now it's always I'm with Jesus now, and I understand that. Colonel Brown inspires me. And it reveals something to me, that no matter where 
we are at or how old we are, there is stuff for us to learn about God and how God wants us to follow. Paul said this. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. As he stood before Agrippa and Felix, he was somebody who was full of hope, full of faith, full of confidence because he, the spirit was here. The son was here. And he said, I see where you're at. But I wish that you were like me, except for these chains. Friends, wherever you're at today, watch how Paul follows Christ and follow Christ. Amen.